Hello, I'm Pierce, and I'm here to tell you that Dracula sucks. Tonight, I'm talking about the 1974 TV movie, Bram Stoker's Dracula, written by Richard Matheson of I Am Legend fame, and directed by Dan Curtis, probably best known at the time for his late 1960s soap opera, Dark Shadows, which had run for over 1,200 episodes and was a real cult success. Uh, the two of them had previously teamed up to make the Night Stalker and Night Strangler TV movies, both of which starred Darren McGavin as the intrepid muckraking reporter Carl Kolchak, who later got his own TV show where he fought monsters every week. This uh, TV version of Dracula that they came up with together starred Jack Palance as the Count, pretty weird casting Palance was best known at the time probably as the villain from the western Shane he'd also played quite a few gangsters very tall imposing presence but not a hint of the supernatural about him and not a lot of romance to him either which is a bit of a problem in this film which attempts to be a romantic take on the Dracula myth well kind of a romantic take I believe it's the first version of Dracula to use the theme of the reincarnated love which has been used several times subsequently to this probably most famously in Francis Ford Coppola's 1992 film which is also called Bram Stoker's Dracula Something like it had actually been done a couple of years earlier in the 1972 black exploitation horror film Black Killer, but I think Dan Curtis was probably drawing from Dark Shadows, where his vampire character Barnabas Collins had his own reincarnated love affair. That was probably the same place that Black Killer got it from. Anyway, it's an interesting little movie. It's clearly made on a budget. It's not as cheap as Dark Shadows, if you've ever seen that show. Probably about on a level with The Night Stalker, although being a period film is a bit hampering in terms of the level of budget it's actually allocated but there's definitely some similarities between the two not least the sheer physicality of Jack Palance's Dracula. He has some fight scenes where he's quite reminiscent of the, the vampire in, in The Night Stalker, who spends quite a bit of that movie throwing cops around in rather acrobatic kinds of ways. Palance does a bit of that in this film as well. Matheson and Curtis are drawing on their own past work quite a lot in this film. Uh, they're also drawing on some of the work of earlier adaptations of Dracula, in particular the 1958 horror of Dracula from Hammer Films, the one with the, the First one with Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing. When I run through the plot, I'll point out the elements that they've borrowed from there. But it also takes off in its own direction, and it's a bit smarter in terms of the way it deals with the reincarnated love affair than, than Coppola's film is. Coppola's film has a number of things about it that don't make any goddamn sense in that regard. I think Matheson actually cracks it pretty well. The main problems of the film are actually in the production itself, where it is very TV movie-esque. There's a lot of pretty obvious day-for-night photography. Everything's a bit threadbare and cheap, and the performances are a bit ropey. It also has more than its share of characters doing dumb things just to advance the plot. But, you know, it compacts the basic story of Dracula down into just over 90 minutes in fairly efficient form. It doesn't do as much violence to the story as the, the Hammer version did, but in no way could you say it's a faithful adaptation of the novel. So it starts as almost every form version of Dracula does, with Jonathan Harker going to Dracula's castle. As usual in this circumstance, uh, Harker is there as a representative of a real estate company. Dracula's relocating from, in this case, Yugoslavia to Carfax, much as he is in the book. Harker is there to facilitate this and to figure out what house he's going to, to buy and all that kind of thing. Anyway, in this version, 
Harker shows off a picture of his fiance Mina, who Dracula isn't interested in at all. He's very interested in the picture he sees of Mina's best friend Lucy, who's played by the lovely Fiona Lewis, who is a veteran of several later pretty great genre films like Brian De Palma's The Fury and Michael Laughlin's Strange Invaders. Uh, it turns out that Lucy is actually the reincarnation of Dracula's lost love, as we find out immediately, pretty much, in a flashback sequence, which is kind of unintentionally creepy just because something about Jack Palance in his Dracula cape making out with Fiona Lewis makes him just seem like an utter creep. It's probably appropriate, because after all, he is Dracula, and Dracula is, let's face it, an utter creep. But it's supposed to be kind of a romantic scene. And if you compare it to, for example, the love scenes in the Frank Langella version of Dracula from a few years later, Plants does not have the romantic hero vibe that's really necessary to pull off this kind of scene. He kind of seems like a thug, which is kind of an interesting take on the character. But given the romantic bent of the film, they could have probably have cast him a bit better. But, you know, he has a striking screen presence, so we'll give him that. Dracula becomes quite explicit with Harker about how he's expendable. In the novel, Dracula basically strings Harker along the entire way into playing lip service to the idea that Harker's his trusted friend and he wants to keep him here, he wants him to help him to practice English. In this version, once he's done with him, just picks him up by the throat and throws him across the room. And he's done with him. We get the requisite scene of Harker being seduced by Dracula's three vampire brides, but in this version, they don't really tend to seduce him, they just basically bear their fangs and come at him which was ended with the traditional scene of Dracula busting in and no, he is mine, and all that kind of thing. How dare you touch him? Any of you? Come on, to wait! Until I... What's different about this version is that rather than being left in the castle by Dracula to die, as he is in the novel and several other form versions, so that he has to escape and adventure his way back to England, or being killed outright by Dracula as he is in the Hammer version, where Van Helsing turns up later and finds him as a vampire in a coffin and has to stake him. In this version, Harker is set upon and beaten about the head by Dracula's retinue, and uh, upon waking up is promptly vampirized by the three vampire brides, and immediately we follow Dracula to England, where the entire voyage of the Demeter is just represented by a shot of a boat shipwrecked and a guy lashed to it, and then a bit of voiceover shortly afterwards telling us that this had happened. At this point, we switch to Whitby in England, and we pick up with Mina Murray, Jonathan Harker's fiancée, who's played by Penelope Horner, easily the best thing about the entire movie. Mina's very underwritten character in this version of it. There's not really a trace of the independent new woman who drives much of the narrative of the book and eventually, essentially writes the book by pulling together everybody else's journals and typing it all up and setting the record straight. But despite the underwritten role, Penelope Hornet plays her with a great deal of strength and character and verve and 
makes the most out of a pretty poorly written role. Richard Matheson is a pretty excellent novelist and short story writer, but on the evidence of things like this and the Poe forms he wrote for Roger Corman, he's kind of a mediocre scriptwriter. His writing for women certainly is nothing particularly special, but Penelope Horner is boss in the role. We also meet Lucy Westenra, who is of course both Mina's best friend and the reincarnation of Dracula's lost love. Her fiancé, Arthur Homewood, who's played by Simon Ward, who's a bit of a wet blanket and looks kind of out of place. And eventually we'll meet Dr. Abraham Van Helsing, played by the very English Nigel Davenport, without a hint of the Dutch in him. Nigel Davenport's an excellent actor who I've seen be very good in a number of films. But as written, this Van Helsing is a bit of a twat. He's not very bright and... Through the latter part of the film, Dracula leads him on a merry chase and just wraps him around his little finger. At the end of the day, he's it's basically through Dracula's own stupidity that he gets done rather than through any brilliance of Van Helsing, or of anybody else for that matter. At this point, Dracula basically turns up and starts luring Lucy out at night, much as he does in the novel, to which she seems to be, in the moment at least, a willing participant in his seduction. She seems fully in the moment. It's entirely possible that she remembers her previous life as his lost love. Or it's possible that Dracula's just a hypnotizing creep who's making her do these things. That would be more true to the novel. But, you know, it's it's trying to give her a more romantic aspect. Even though, by the later day, while she's talking to her fiancé, she does seem puzzled by everything. So, yeah, it's more likely, probably, that she's under the thrall of Dracula than that she's a willing participant. But it's still an interesting concept, the idea that Lucy might actually be into Dracula. It's not really something that you usually see in these films. But again, it's something that is also borrowed in Coppola's film. I actually kind of wonder if Coppola, or at least James V. Hart, had seen this film and just stolen from it, because there's a couple of things that are pretty heavily copped. He changes who the reincarnated love is and quite a few other elements. Just the mere existence of that and the way that Lucy is into Dracula, they're pretty close. Dracula actually storms the house at one point in order to get at Lucy. He gets what's supposed to be a wolf to jump through the window and attack. This movie has a pretty interesting idea of what a wolf is. Right at the start of the film, one of the first things we see is a pack of wolves, or at least there are wolves howling on the soundtrack, running up the hill towards Dracula's castle. But I'll tell you one thing, those ain't wolves. Those are dogs. Those are nice, friendly dogs. And they're not even dogs that they attempt to make look like wolves. They are just all kinds of dogs. Friendly, tails wagon, good dogs, a lot of them. Jess Franco's Count Dracula got a lot of stick for passing off German shepherds as wolves. At least German shepherds are the general shape of a wolf. And at least they were all the same breed of dog. This is just a whole bunch of dogs running along up a hill having a great old time. And somebody's just shoved wolf sound effects over the top of them. It's kind of hilarious. And this wolf is much the same. It's a dog. Jumps in through the window. It wants to play. It's having a great time. But they have to pretend that it's trying to attack them until they can repel both the wolf and Dracula. I think they actually shoot the wolf, which is charming. But never mind. As with the novel... Eventually, Lucy sickens and dies, at which point, obviously, she comes back as a vampire. This time, basically attempting to seduce Arthur, turning up at his door. Van Helsing wastes very little time, opening up her coffin and staking her and killing her forever. 
When Dracula turns up that night and attempts to beckon Lucy out of her coffin to come out and play, he discovers that she's been killed and flies into a rage to rival the scene in Citizen Kane where Orson Welles stumbles around his wife's bedroom and trashes everything. He just breaks the shit out of the entire tomb, just kills the hell out of every inanimate object he can find. It's kind of a fun scene and it's, it's definitely a scene where Jack Flance gets to show off his physicality in the role. And this is the main thing, I think, that makes this version of it interesting. It gives Dracula a solid motivation. In most versions of Dracula, he is coming to England. He seems to have some kind of plan to dominate and take over and rule, or at least drink his way through England. And instead, he pauses to seduce two women that happen to be connected to a solicitor he knows, and it's his undoing. In this version, Dracula specifically goes to Whitby to find Lucy as the reincarnation of his lost love, seduces her, when she is killed, flies into a towering rage, and the rest of the film is Dracula's revenge upon the people who killed her. That's something I don't think any other version has done, is actually give Dracula a motivation for what he's doing in the second half of the story. Unfortunately, in this version, it's a low-budget TV movie, so they don't have a hell of a lot for him to do. So what ends up happening is they realise that Dracula is going to come for Mina, so they take Mina and Lucy's mother to a hotel out of Whitby. Dracula follows them. Meanwhile, <laughs> in the more pointless scenes in any Dracula film, and that's saying a lot, Arthur Homewood and Professor Van Helsing trace the shipping crates of earth that dracula has shipped on the boat to england from shipping company to shipping company to shipping company to shipping company until they finally realize oh my god they've ended up back at the place where we started and they have to turn around and go back home again well, it's like a wild goose chase if instead of geese you had boxes of vampire earth of course by the time they got there dracula has already managed to vampirize mina who is not dead yet, but, you know, slowly turning into a vampire, getting more sinister. You know, again, very well played by Penelope Horner. Arthur and Van Helsing take on what in the book is an epic chase from England back to Transylvania, but here is basically just jumping on a train, heading to Yugoslavia, where they have their final battle with Dracula. But first, they have to have a battle with Jonathan Harker, who leaps out of nowhere and attacks the shit out of them. In a pretty great scene, because it's just so unexpected, because who remembered that Jonathan Harker was, was still around and was a vampire? He gets a pretty cool death where they throw him into a pit and he gets impaled on a wooden spike. Right at the moment when Dracula has them at their mercy, oh, it looks like the sun's come up, they whip open the curtains, and Dracula is weakened, and they just stab him, and it's over. It's highly anticlimactic. Let's face it, every version of Dracula is somewhat anticlimactic. If you go back to the original novel, the epic chase and the battles and the knife fights and the gunfights and all these kind of things as they chase down Dracula's party end pretty abruptly when they just kill him. And that's pretty much what happens here as well. As Dracula movies go, this is probably somewhere in the mid-range. It's got some interesting ideas. It's got one interesting performance. It's kind of fun seeing Jack Palance play Dracula. What's kind of even more interesting about Jack Palance playing Dracula is the Marvel Comics connection. A couple of years before this, Marvel Comics launched a line of horror comics. Previously, they'd been unable to do that because the Comics Code Authority had prohibited any explicit horror stories. 
but it had, it had just relaxed it in the early 1970s. And so Marvel launched an entire range of comics involving vampires, werewolves, motorcyclists with flaming skulls, living mummies, Frankenstein's monster, zombies, and probably most memorably of all, the son of Satan, who they actually depicted as an anti-heroic or even a superhero kind of character, who I believe is getting his own TV show pretty soon from the Marvel Cinematic Universe. That should be pretty interesting. And one of the comics that they came out with was Tomb of Dracula, which ran for quite a few years. And their conception of Dracula was visually inspired by Jack Palance. And I have to wonder if that led into Dan Curtis's casting of Palance in the role in any way, if he was aware that this had happened. It seems unlikely that Dan Curtis was a, you know, a Marvel zombie who knew that this had happened. Because if you look at the character as drawn, I read quite a few Tomb of Dracula comics and I never really picked up that he was based on Jack Palance. And honestly, looking at him now, it's not super obvious. It's not like how you look at early Alan Moore Swamp Thing comics and John Constantine is definitely sting this isn't like that if it's supposed to be a portrait of jack palance it's not the most accurate portrait of him but it is kind of a fun connection anyway just knowing that palance was actually playing dracula for the second time in a kind of way i always want to be able to praise richard matheson's script and i it's got a couple of interesting things in it i'm never a huge fan of dracula as a romantic hero but i'm just gonna have to get over that because dracula's a romantic hero a lot in movies and it's just the way it is. For a 1970s TV movie about Dracula from the guy who made the endearingly shonky Dark Shadows TV show, this is probably as good as you could have hoped for. The locations are nice. It's actually filmed in Yugoslavia in England, so it's not just some Hollywood backlot passing off on it like you might expect. It's reasonably well shot, although that shonky day-for-night photography does get in the way I wonder if people were just more forgiving of this back in the day because day for night always seems really obvious to me in movies. I'd much rather a scene that's shot at night where you can barely see what's going on than one of these flat, it's day but everything's kind of blue kind of scenes that you get in these films. Which were even funnier in some of the older ones where sometimes they'd forget to put the filter back on when they restored it for DVD or VHS and they were just day for day. And you just have Dracula ever walking around in the day. At least in the DVD that I have of this, the day for night is, does exist. It just looks terrible. Nigel Davenport's always fun to watch and his uh, hairstyle and facial hair are kind of the star of his performance. He's not really committing and his role's not very well done. Fiona Lewis is lovely as Lucy but doesn't really get a lot to do. Murray Brown as Jonathan Harker is, he just seems kind of irritated by everything that's going on. Supposedly uh, Sarah Douglas, who you may remember as Ursa from Superman and Superman 2, a great villain actor. She's also the, the villain in Conan the Destroyer and in Solar Babies. She's got a great look. I'm a big Sarah Douglas fan. She plays one of Dracula's wives. Honestly, I would never have spotted her. I still didn't spot her. I was trying to figure out which one she was, not the blonde one. The blonde one is Virginia Weatherall, who was a veteran of some Hammer Horror movies of the period, like Demons of the Mind and Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde. And uh, I believe she had an appearance in Curse of the Crimson Altar, which is a bit of a guilty pleasure of mine. A little low-budget British horror film with Christopher Lee, Boris Karloff, and Barbara Steele. Other than Penelope Horner as, as Mina, there's not really a lot going on cast-wise here. And she doesn't seem to have gone on to done a lot of other work, which is unfortunate because she's really very good here. It's just a shame they didn't give her more to two. But ultimately, Bram Stoker's Dracula, written by Richard Matheson, directed by Dan Curtis. I give it a D for Dracula. This has been Pierce, 
And I'm here to tell you that Dracula sucks. Good night, everybody. <laughs>